I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of The Woman in Tech Show, a podcast where we talk about what we work on, not what it feels like to be a woman in tech. For more information about the show, go to wit.fm. Providing opportunities to migrants can help them integrate to society and add value. In 2017, Marcela Torres founded Hola Code, a startup with a goal to integrate migrants in Mexico by teaching them software engineering skills. With these skills, they'll have access to more jobs and opportunities. Marcela explained the challenges that migrants face and how they tackle them. We also talked about the tech scene in Mexico and in other parts of Latin America. Marcela Torres, welcome to the Women in Tech Show. Hi, thank you for having me. You're the founder of Hola Code. Hola Code is a startup that is teaching software engineering to migrants, returnees, deportees, and refugees. So people that used to live in the United States but now are in Mexico. Can you explain in more detail what Hola Code's initial goal was? Well, the initial goal was to create an alternative opportunity for education and, you know, ultimately integration for forced migrants in Mexico. As the current offer, let's say it's not very open for everybody. So let's say you're returning from the U.S. and you grew up there as a DACA recipient or undocumented, but you still went to high school and you did somewhat community college and you come back to Mexico and your paperwork is not, you know, officially recognized as, you know, as if you went to school. And therefore, your opportunities to have a different type of job in Mexico are very limited. And also, there are opportunities that people with this background, specifically young people, are very much limited to their language skills, which I thought it was very a very narrow way of seeing what people that have a bicultural experience and bilingual experience can offer and do in a new country um and not even you know language based but there's a lot of transferable skills and a lot of knowledge that I would like to call social remittances and that is gone to waste if you just focus on well they can be language professors or they can be working in call centers so the whole premise of Holocode was that there is a lot of talent out there, but the opportunities are not there. So how do you design opportunities that are, you know, for a specific type of group that has a very different set of needs? For example, you know, your paperwork is not recognized. And therefore, if you're doing an education platform, then you have to redesign how you think about admissions. So in overall, Ola Code's mission was to provide an alternative for an integration path through the creation of technology in Mexico. One of the additional things that I noticed from the program is that you're also providing meals and sort of like a stipend. Is this because of the situation of the students where a lot of them, they didn't really plan that they'll be in Mexico maybe and then the circumstances led and then they come to this place where they're not fluent in Spanish, they don't have a home. Is this related to that? Yeah, I think like, but the origins of Wallacode come very tied up with my background, which is in social development. And I didn't want to make any assumptions of what people needed. What I did was to ask people what were their blockages to achieve their dreams. 
and often at these sort of groups and settings that we were trying to come up with the design of Volacode, there are very specific different needs that we identify that could be easily targeted in the program. So for instance, having access to meals, even though not everyone necessarily needs them, a lot of people are traveling from the outskirts of Mexico City to inwards Mexico City. And, you know, the time and commute is kind of difficult to buy food before you can get into the program or, you know, you're living in a housing situation in which you don't have access to a kitchen or all of these different things that become an obstacle for a person to actually have, you know, a basic meal to just go through your day. So we just thought that we wanted to reduce the stress of thinking, you know, or deciding whether I'm going to go and have this education program or not because of something so specific as in I don't have the time or I don't have the resource or I don't have the equipment to provide myself for a breakfast so you know that's sort of part of the design of Volaco that we were designing yeah this is something that is going to become an obstacle for people to hinder their opportunities for growth so we decided to if it was within our scope and if it was around the vision of the, the enterprise in itself, we were going to do it. And that's how we started calling that. We started saying that all I could was sort of eliminating the obstacles and the barriers that people have to achieve their dreams. Earlier, you mentioned your background in social development and how this helped you go out there and ask people their needs or gather the information basically versus just making assumptions. Can you talk a bit about what social development is about yeah so it's kind of funny because I am a social scientist and in this type of you know program like let's say if you're working in social development it's so broad so within in itself social development studies of it as a social scientist is to understand various different things from power dynamics gender dynamics intersectionalism race inequality and all of these different things that hinder uh, communities or an individual's opportunities to, you know, overcome their barriers and obstacles that can be institutional, social, economical, or, you know, based on their own identities to actually go on and live their lives that they are aspired to do. And I know it sounds really broad, but that's exactly what it is. So when you're studying something like social development, you're studying something incredibly broad And that's why a lot of people go on and specialize, for example, in gender studies or in geography or urban studies with social development. So what I decided is that because I was having such a broad background, I was really interested and curious about technology. So I infusing all of these like broad knowledge into a specific sector. And from your experience, what have you found is the role of technology in social development? I think the role of technology in social development is very interesting because we are more reliant to technology every day. But at the same time, there's a lot of people that are being left out of this conversation. There's still a lot of people that don't have access to the internet. There's still a lot of people that don't have access to a device. And even when they do, they're normally their role in engaging with technology is more of a consumer rather than a creator. And this is where I am most, let's say, obsessed with when it comes to my professional development and my career, 
is that we are becoming increasingly more consumers of technology and we're not creating technology. And perhaps if we're creating technology, we're creating it under the vision of someone else, but more or less the diversity that is required. So more and more the diversity and the diverse voices that are required to be creating technology Let's say for us, by us, it's been reduced and I am very interested in expanding that opportunity or let's say that the capacity of creating technology for underrepresented communities so they can start creating technology for their own issues, for their own vision and for their own perspectives that it's consumed by them and for them, if that makes any sense. Yes, that makes sense. And what has been your experience or how do you see the panorama of making technology in Mexico? Are there a lot of small companies right now? Do you know about the scene? Yeah, of course. I think it's an exciting time for the creation of technology in Mexico. One thing that I do have to say is that we're coming into this conversation a little bit late. Mexico is not in a stage of creation of technology that I would love to see the country to be at. But it's getting there. The issues that I see is that the technology that has been created at the moment is with a very specific vision of serving a very specific sector that has incredible returns because of the opportunities there. And I'm talking specifically about the fintech sector. So if you look at a lot of tech companies that are being built and created at the moment and are successful in Mexico, they're all doing lending or some sort of fintech solution and I understand why because the opportunity is there there's a lot of people that are on their bank underserved but it's just filling in gaps for what is existing at the moment what I would really love to see at the new or the next phase of the creation of technology in Mexico is something bolder and creative ideas and something that pushes reality beyond what we're currently ex like experiencing and you know just sustaining the status quo because that's for me from my perspective is not very innovative and it's just my point of view so it would be more interesting to start seeing people that are taking risks and bolder ideas of creating things with technology and sometimes they don't even have to solve a problem you know they don't even have to be something that serves a specific sector and this is where innovation sparks and you can create a lot of different things I mean I think this is how a lot of social media platforms were created they were not trying to solve a specific problem they were just creative input of connecting people in a different way through technology and I would like to see that not that I'm saying that I would like to see social media platforms being created in Mexico and if they are that's amazing what I'm trying to say is that I would like to see the creators of technology at the moment in the country to push their own boundaries of what it is being created and yeah instead of just thinking about commodities and financial services what else can we do what else can we do for our own country and that would be very very interesting to see all well, code itself was structured as a startup from your experience what were some of the main challenges in building running and growing a startup I think building, running, everything in a startup is incredibly hard. And I know it sounds like a cliche because a lot of people say it is a really, really tough thing to do, but you don't realize the levels of how hard it is until you do it. 
And then you add the new layer of you're doing it in Latin America, which is, you know, challenging in itself. And then you add the layer of Mexico, which in comparison with other countries in Latin America, in terms of startup scene and creation, it's a little bit far behind. If you compare it with, like, let's say, Colombia or Chile, that they have more infrastructure and services for entrepreneurs. So Mexico is catching up. I'm like glad to say that all of these things are happening. However, the ecosystem still needs to mature. So it's still at, at a very early stage in which there is a couple of like good accelerators or good programs for new entrepreneurs. And there's a lot of investment funds that now are starting to have more track record. But there's still a lot to be said that the maturity of the scene, it's very fresh. So you still need more experienced investors that understand what a risk investment, a venture capital really means. And at the moment in Mexico, you still see the dynamic of in levels like pre-seed or seed investment. There's a lot of fights and battles about control. And I think there is a need for investors to be, you know, a little bit more confident in their investments and not think so much about control, but think more about how am I going to help this startup succeed? And I don't necessarily have to be sitting in the board I don't necessarily have to have control of decision-making. Helping a startup succeed doesn't necessarily translate into control. It can translate into support in ideas, in access, in providing networks. So that's still a thing happening in Mexico. And then if you add the layer of you're a woman running a startup, then you just literally decided to choose life on a very extreme hard mode. So that just makes it incredibly challenging. You know, we're talking about Latin America has its, you know, it's growing and it's having its momentum, but it requires its uh, a lot of more resources and maturity. And then you go down to Mexico and Mexico is a little bit behind. We still yet have to see more unicorns. You know, I think we've only had one and that was a long time ago. And then the maturity of the investment scene and also the access of resources and mentorship that entrepreneurs should have. I mean, I would love to see investment funds open up by entrepreneurs that already had exits because I think those types of investment funds are really exciting. And then we come down to another pillar of I was a female founder. By that, I'm talking about all of those challenges that I've just said become increasingly hard if you're a woman and I've even had you know people that ask me if I was planning on getting pregnant in the next year because that would be something that would either you know provide access or not to investment for my company and I think that's something that in other countries is illegal you know like this shouldn't be happening but it does happen in, in Mexico And, you know, I don't have an official degree in computer science. So a lot of my technical abilities were consistently questioned. So I always had to be on top of my game and prove that I could do it. And it's a lot of extra hard work, even in the small details on the everyday, that you don't even think about them as a woman. You just go on and say like, oh, this is how you naturally just behave. But if you compare it, and I've compared myself a lot with my colleague and fellow founders, 
and I've seen them work and I've seen all of their accomplishments and I'm not diminishing them by any means, but they don't have to worry about how they're going to be dressed in an event, like let's say, or every morning going into the office. They don't have to think about that. And as women, we do have to think about it. You can't wear a skirt that is too short because this and that and that. Or, you know, I at some point last year, I was so tired of people asking me if I was tired, if I had enough hours of sleep, because I don't normally like to wear makeup. And I really started thinking, oh my God, I should just wear makeup. And I did it. I did the experiment for a week and it took me longer, you know, to get dressed and everything. But people stopped asking me that question. And I was like, I don't want to live a life in which I am thinking about makeup and all of these other things that I want to focus on other things. But I also don't want to be questioned every day about my well-being without even, you know, me putting myself in a position that I am being asked for it. Exactly. I've gotten asked the same thing too. And yes, I've done similar experiments. Yeah, it's interesting because, yeah, like you said, there's little things that just come from the environment, the expectation, even if you don't want to think on a daily basis, like I'm a woman, I will have disadvantages. These little things pop up like, yeah, the expectation of your looks, people are used to maybe certain looks and that's why they make assumptions and that kind of stuff. But then, like you said, that translates to more time that you have to put into those things that could be used for something else. Yeah, even just like getting a full night's sleep, you know, like I'm not even talking about like, oh, I want to wake up earlier and be more productive. Like just having a full night's sleep instead of waking up a little bit earlier to just get ready and look nicer. So it does really hinder a lot of your work and it just does limit. It even questions everything you say. Like you have to... I found myself self-editing myself so many times before speaking and it really gets to a point that is really uncomfortable because you feel like you're sort of betraying your own persona. You're asking, is this really me or is this a version that people want to hear? And the other thing that you mentioned that I thought was important is in other countries like Mexico, for example, you said people can still ask you sometimes like, hey, are you going to get pregnant? Whereas in other countries, you cannot do that. Even in other areas, I experienced differences. Like when I was looking for jobs, like my resume had to have my picture. I would show up for an interview and they would ask things about my family. Like, how do you get along? Assuming that I had siblings and parents and everything. So they would just ask more personal questions. I don't know if they still do that, but I'm just trying to show the listeners how different some of the processes are, right? Yeah, of course. Like that is a thing. And I think like, again, we're talking about something that is illegal in, I think, the entire European Union to ask for a resume with a photo. There's even a discussion whether should people put their like first names or just put their surnames, which also gives you the opportunity to like rule out any gender biases you might have. But in Mexico, you still have to send your resume with a photo. And I think that's outrageous. And it's 2020. And we're still having that conversation. But it does hinder the capacity of women to have access to these types of roles and positions. And not even just as a founder, you know, you I try to do a lot of work for working around women in the tech sector. And sometimes you go to certain spaces 
and there's only a woman sitting there and looking at you with this big eyes of like, oh my God, thank God you're here. And you look at them back and say like, yeah, thank God there's two of us today. I recently had an experience in which I was in an auditorium and I was talking to young people about entrepreneurship and all these things. And I was I asked the question, how many women knew how to code? And it was only three versus men. It was a lot of them. And then I just wanted to focus on the women that said yes. And that I also asked women that didn't know how to code that they were interested in coding. And it was like seven or eight. And I was having a conversation with them. I asked them, what is the number one thing that is stopping you? And they were in the process of answering that. And what happened was that a couple of men were just raising their hands and answering above them. And I had to stop them. And I said, I am so sorry, but I am not asking you the question. I'm pretty sure you have obstacles and barriers in studying or learning how to code. But I am really, really curious right now on what are their problems and issues. And I would like you to listen. And the men that, you know, were trying to answer my question got really upset and they were, you know, calling me out for discrimination and all these different things. And I thought it was really funny because I wasn't discriminating them. I never asked them that question. They were just jumping into a question that was not asked to them. And they were having to provide their insights, which tells you a lot about the dynamics in the country when it comes to these conversations, right? So even if I am asking it specifically to a woman, a man thinks that they have that space also for themselves to have a word and say what they want to say. And after the event finished, I talked to a lot of the rest of the women and they said, oh, I also want to learn how to code, but I was too shy to talk about it. And I was like, oh, tell me why. And we had this interesting conversation and it was very dynamic. And I just realized like even women that are interested in, you know, learning how to code or start a, a career in the tech sector are not brave enough to talk about it because the, exactly what happened happens to them on a daily basis. Someone else jumps into their conversation. Someone else assumes what they're going to say and without even being asked for it, which I think it's dangerous. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The other thing I want to ask you before we finish is earlier you were you mentioning that other countries like Colombia and Chile, you've seen them have more services that are helping entrepreneurs. Are there some examples of the opportunities that they're currently providing that would be useful to have in Mexico? I mean, I think one of the things, for example, in Chile is that they've got part of government strategy and government agencies, a really strong strategy towards creating an, a startup ecosystem. And I think that's really important because that provides a lot of, you know, foundations for an ecosystem to grow. I'm not saying that it's perfect and I'm pretty sure people from Chile are going to say, this is wrong and there's all, a lot of different things that are not working, but at least it exists and it can be improved. Whereas in Mexico, we didn't have that. And there's no strategy from the current administration to say the startups are a thing. We believe in them. We want them to grow. Like nothing has been put in place. So we're starting from zero. And a difference, for example, in Colombia is that they've already had uh, startups that had reached different levels of maturity. Therefore, you have access to entrepreneurs that have walked a very different path, you know, towards an exit, towards a unicorn. And they, some way or another, become mentors of the next generation of entrepreneurs. So they already have access to the do's and don'ts and the learnings that 
are really relevant and important for someone to, you know, be successful in their own venture. And I think in Mexico, that is still lacking. I'm not saying that we don't have great mentors. I always have this rule when it comes to mentorship. So on one hand, you have seasoned entrepreneurs that either failed or had exits or had a massive return or a big company that can always give you advice on a startup, regardless of the sector. They can always give you lessons and teach you a lot of things. And then there's other types of expertise. So let's say if I was just focusing on like, you know, I don't know, let's say makeup. I don't know. I'm just coming up with something. There's already, you know, you choose someone that is going to mentor you that has been working 10 to 15 years in the makeup industry and or in supply chain logistics for this type of commodity. You know, so that's how I always make a difference between the types of mentorship that you can have access to and I think Mexico is yet there to uh, create that type of environment and distinction because I think there's a lot of really cool programs right now that are making those efforts but I think it needs to be pushed a little bit more I also think the services available for entrepreneurs have to be more professional so let's say like lawyers services you know there's a lot of details when you're opening a company that are going to have a long-term impact in how you're running it depending on what you sign at an early stage so you need the best type of lawyers the problem is that you can't afford them at that time so it feels like oh it's impossible but I've seen it in other countries like in Colombia there's a lot of like good lawyers that work in the startup scene that do a lot of work that is not necessarily pro bono, but you get paid after the round of investment get closed. So that's a, a way of saying like, this is not free, but it's going to be accessible for you and you're going to get the best advice. And the same comes for financial advisory. The same comes for fiscal advisory. Those are really key elements for building the foundations of a really successful venture. And in the beginning, you don't have access to those. Well, Marcela, thank you for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you about various topics in Latin America and technology and social development. Well, thank you so much for having me. I had fun. 